Well, we are back on uh, our series going through the book of John. It's been a couple uh, months, actually, and I was excited last week to have our guest speaker, Greg Allison, who, who kicked us off, and I was kind of jealous because I gave him a really, like, I, you know, you call him a softball passage, like, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, classic passage, and I was like, why did I give that one up? I want to preach on that, but he did an awesome awesome job. And I know many of you are like, I'm so encouraged. I'm so inspired. I, I was too. Now, just if you weren't here last week, this is John chapter 13, starting in verse 1 through 17. Jesus is in the upper room. Uh, we have been going through the book of John starting way back in 2019. We just take some breaks every once in a while. And uh, we know that the first half of the book of John is something called the book of signs, where Jesus, it's his life and his ministry. And then somewhere in chapter 12, there's a transition. So 13, we have what's called the book of glory. The first part of that book takes like three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. And the last part of that book, the book of glory, takes about a week. And so we have Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. The roads are dirty. They don't have concrete and, and pavement like we have. They're wearing sandals. So Jesus takes on the position of a servant, washes the feet, because that's something that only servants would do. And, and they're like, whoa, I, what's going on here? But he sets that example. And it's a, it's a beautiful picture of being of humility, of selflessness, and of love. In my prayer before this message, I just said, sometimes we come to these very familiar, even simple truths, and we find ourselves years, years into our faith still being challenged by these same truths. I was challenged, and I was inspired. I know many of you were, because you, you, you mentioned it to me. We were ready to go out and serve like Jesus, Right? And if you're like me, Monday rolled around. I don't have any difficult coworkers, but I imagine some of you may have some difficult coworkers. All my coworkers are awesome all the time. Maybe it's demanding family members. Maybe it's that lady who cuts in front of you in the grocery store, self-checkout. And you're like, you know, where's the opportunity there? All this inspiration, all this excitement about, about being like Jesus and serving like Jesus and being humble, it seems to fade away pretty quickly. It's easier said than done. I guess that's why we have to remind ourselves over and over again of these truths. Now, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, it's not a new story. We learned about it as children. But when we hear it as adults, we're like, you know what? I know that's true. I, I know that. I just got to do better. I got to make sure that I, I, I do better. And the problem with that is when we, when we determined, it's a good thing to do better. We want to be all that God wants us to be. But sometimes when we look at messages, and it wasn't the message's fault, it's just our interpretation. When we hear what we can be all that God wants us to be, we, we want to try to be better. We want to, we want to be like, you know, this time, if I, I could do it right. And that's, that's kind of the dark side of this inspiring go Go, go out and win the world for Jesus, be zealous and enthusiastic. There is kind of a dark side, and here's the dark side. We overestimate our own strength. We say to ourselves, you know, I can do this. If I just have a little more discipline, I'm going to get it right this time. And we, we kind of like, I'm a baseball player, so I use a lot of these baseball analogies. We're, we're gripping the bat tighter. I'm going to hit this ball now. We overestimate our strength to do what Jesus wants us to do, and then we underestimate our weakness. We easily forget how sinful, selfish, and self-centered we are. And if you don't know that, that then you guess you don't over, underestimate it. But the amen says, I, I recognize it. But this is, here's some good news. The good news is that Jesus knows that we're going to overestimate our strength and underestimate our weakness. That's why he died us on the cross. I mean, 
If all it took was do better, get it right this time, try harder, then he wouldn't have to die on the cross. He could just give us really good instructions. But instead, he dies on the cross for our sins and in our place. You know what? That whole idea of giving really good instructions, he tried that already and it didn't really work out. That's why we need grace. We need grace because we can't do it on our own. And if you're not a Christian here today, we're so excited you're here. We're, we're thankful that you're here. Thank you for joining us for worship. This is, if you get nothing else, I want you to hear the message of the gospel, that we are unable. If you think that we're a bunch of people who gather together because we're really good and doing good things, I hope, you're, I hope you may be surprised to find out that we're not as good as you think we think we are. We kind of know. That's the beautiful thing about the gospel. You don't really get good news until you have some bad news. And the bad news is we're separated because of our selfish, sinful self. We're born into this thing. But so that's the good news. Jesus knows. But the bad news is Jesus doesn't give us a hall pass. He doesn't soften the command. Listen, at the very end of the chapter, or in the section that, that, that Greg Allison preached last week, when Jesus washes the feet, he says this in verse 14 of John chapter 13. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you this as an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Jesus doesn't say, do as I have done to you, but I understand there will be times when you're going to want to be selfish. I, I, I'm realistic. I don't expect you to obey me all of the time. Just try to obey me most of the time. Jesus doesn't soften that. He knows that we, we're, we're unable and incapable of, of, of doing that, and yet he doesn't like cut us a break. He doubles down, actually. He does the exact opposite. Because in the very next passage, which is our passage today, we haven't looked at it yet, but we're going to see it in a moment. In the very next passage, he doesn't just say, follow my example and serve. He says, love each other. Now, it's one thing to say, you know, go out and serve. You can serve people you don't like. And Jesus, Jesus served Judas. We, we saw that last week. He knows Judas is about to betray him, and yet he, he washes Judas' feet. It's one thing to say, I can serve people I don't like. Some of us know how, what it means in the name of our, our faith, in the name of following Jesus, to kind of force the outward correct response, even though the inside, we're kind of like, I really don't want to be doing this. We used to joke sometimes in church, and maybe you did this, like, you don't have to like them, you just have to love them. <laughs> I'm not so sure that's what Jesus had in mind when he said, love each other. I don't know if he was saying, fake it till you make it. I'm faking it till I make it as a senior pastor, but everything else, I think Jesus... That was supposed to be funny. You guys are like, yeah, amen, he is. Whoa. Oh, gosh. I'm going to drink that one out. Okay. It's one thing to say to serve others, but it's another thing to say love others. Because now Jesus is messing with what's going, in, what's going on inside of us and not just how we're acting Then Jesus gives us this instruction that we're about to read. I know we haven't read it yet. He gives us instruction to love and sets the example and sets the standard of one who loves to those who are unlovable. Because when we read that command, which we're going to in a moment, 
we read it sandwiched between him predicting that Judas would betray him and his prediction that Peter would deny him. He sets a standard really, really high to love those who have wronged him. He loved the unlovable, and he calls us to do the same. One Christian writer writes this, loving people is about the, the most difficult thing that some of us do. We, have been patient with, we can be patient with people and even just and charitable, but how are we supposed to conjure up in our hearts that warm, effervescent, you know it's a Christian author because I don't use the word effervescent in my normal language, effervescent sediment of goodwill to which the New Testament calls love. Some people are so miserably unlovable, that odorous person with the nasty cough who sat next to you on the train shoving his newspaper in your face, those inconsiderate neighbors with a barking dog, that's, that smooth liar who took advantage of you last week. I love this. By what magic are you supposed to feel towards are you supposed to feel towards these people anything but revulsion, distrust, resentment, and justified desire to have nothing to do with them? Now I know some of you are like, oh, I'm bracing myself here. This is going to be a heavy message. Jerome's going to get in my face about the grudge I'm holding or the the, the bitterness that I'm feeling. And some of you are already thinking about people that are unlovable and difficult. Can I can I set your mind at ease? that I'm, it's not my job to condemn you. I, I'm not qualified to condemn because I'm with you. I struggle to love people who don't deserve it. But this message here today is not about that. It's about hope. There's hope for us who are exhausted, trying hard to love like Jesus. This is a message of hope because Jesus not only gives us the command, but he tells us how it's possible. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 13. And as you do, let me give you a little background if you're just now joining us. I mentioned we've been in John. Um, we are finally in 13. I've given you a little bit of background, but John writes this book to reveal who Jesus is, namely so that people can believe in him and then have life in him. He wrote it about 80, 90. I'm giving you time to turn your pages, by the way. Towards the end of his life, towards the end of the first century, looking back, because he was an eyewitness to all these things. As a matter of fact, we're going to see in this text, he doesn't even refer to himself as me or John, he's, he calls himself the, the, the disciple that Jesus loved to, to show kind of his, his closeness with Jesus. We're going to pick it up in verse 18. I'm not saying these things to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. Now, saying what things? That command after washing their feet? Go back to 17. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Um all the things he was saying, just as I have done, that you should do as well. I'm not saying these things to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. Remember, Judas is still standing there in their midst. But this fulfills the scriptures that says, the one who eats my food has turned against me. I tell you this beforehand so that when it happens, you will believe that I am the Messiah. I tell you the truth, anyone who welcomes my messenger is welcoming me. And anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the Father who sent me. Now Jesus was deeply troubled, and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at each other, wondering whom it could be. The disciple Jesus loved, which is John's uh, title for himself as he writes this gospel, was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Simon Peter motioned to him and asked, Who's he talking about? 
So that disciple leaned over to Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus responded, it is the one whom I give the bread I dip into the bowl. And then he had dipped it. He gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. When Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus told them, hurry and do what you are going to do. None of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. Since Judas was the treasurer, they thought Jesus was telling him to go and to pay for the food or to give money to the poor. So Judas left at once, going out into the night. So we've read the chapter. Let's just walk through it real quick. What we have here after coming off the foot washing is, is uh, Jesus saying, not one of you is clean. I, I kind of referenced that while we were reading it. Uh, he says that in a couple other places where he's like, I love you guys. One of you is a devil. You see that earlier in the book of John. You may remember that. I would imagine that that kind of language is making Judas pretty uncomfortable at this moment. But then in verses 19 through 20, we see um, the reason he's telling them this. He wants them to believe. He's kind of like, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed by one of you, and then you'll know that I'm who I am. Because he's about to be arrested within 24 hours, arrested and, and, and put on trial and crucified and dead. And, and before he rises again, they're like, what just happened? But he's like, I'm going to call my shot, like Babe Ruth standing at the plate. I'm calling my shot so that when this happens, you'll know. You'll really, really know. And in verse 21, he predicts the betrayal. Jesus is pretty clear here. One of you is going to betray me. See, at this point, John has talked about being betrayed a number of times throughout the book of John, or Jesus has talked about it. But it's been kind of vague. It hasn't been very specific. This is pretty obvious. One of you are going to betray me. Now, let me just make sure you understand that right now we're really kind of focused on the 12. There were other followers of Jesus. There were other disciples who followed him in the triumphal entry. There were plenty of people there. There may have been some other people in the upper room, but really he's speaking to the 12, preparing them for when he's going to depart. And the whole idea of suffering and death that, that he's been talking about throughout his ministry doesn't really jive with their idea of what a Messiah is. The promised Messiah isn't supposed to suffer and die. And that same confusion that the disciples have shown, it must have been, must have been confusing here. They must have been thinking, well, it must be a disciple outside of one of us, 12. I mean, we're the inner circle. Perhaps they were thinking, well, maybe one of us could betray him, but it, maybe it's an accident, like we say it's something we shouldn't, kind of irresponsible. Oops. But I imagine a lot of them are saying, yeah, one of us betrays you, but is that really that big of a deal? Like, this is the guy that we've watched feed the masses. He's, wa he's walked on water. He's raised the dead. He could handle whatever it is. Not a big deal. Let's move on, Jesus. The disciples' response were, was, was that of being stunned. They're, they're looking at each other. John, John, John says, nobody speaks up until Peter, which is kind of like Peter, right, to be the first to say something. They're kind of looking at each other like, uh... This room just got awkward. And it says that Peter motions to John, John the disciple that Jesus loves sitting next to him. Now, sometimes when we read our Bible, we just kind of read it. And so I don't know. Everyone has their own, like, picture of what they're seeing. I'm pretty sure it was pretty subtle. I was like, John, who's he talking about? I think it was more like, hey, who? Who's he talking about? Like, you're sitting right next to him. Go and ask him. 
And I think this all kind of came hush-hush because when Judas finally does leave, we know that the disciples, most of those guys didn't even know what was going on. So John leans in and asks, and Jesus gives the, resp- the response about, you know, who I give this piece of bread to? I'm going to dip it. I'm going to give it. Now, let me stop and, and take a step back. The very beginning of this chapter we read, it was right before the Passover, and um, this is what we call the, the, the Last Supper or the, you know, the Upper Room Discourse. There's a meal they take together. Uh, very likely, that, that, that Passover meal happens at the very end of Passover, so this is like winding down. They're going to have this meal, and if you've ever done one of those things with the, the bitter herbs and the lamb thing and there's a whole thing where the kids sit there and they ask questions and like the fatherly figure stands and answers, or doesn't stand, but he's there who's answering the questions. Jesus has put himself in this position. And we see that because he even says, dear children, my, my children. He, and they're asking questions just like the little kids at a, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a Seder. He's playing host. And it's customary for a host to actually do this thing with the bread and dip it in, in a cup and give it to somebody And when they do that, it's not a sign of this person's going to betray me. It's a sign of honor. He gives a gesture of love and honor to Judas. Boy, is that a picture of the love of Jesus? Loving the unlovable? It's a mark of friendship. In fact, it's a mark of friendship that it seems, this is maybe me kind of picturing what it looked like, but It didn't seem like he was like, hey, take this bread, pass it down, pass it down, pass it down, get it to Judas. Judas must have been within reach. It's a gesture of love. Judas receives the bread, but he misses the love. And it says right there, it's when Satan entered him. This could be possession. This could just be his final rejection of Jesus, which is satanically influenced. Whatever it is, it's not totally clear. But then Jesus' response is, hurry and go what you... Hurry and do what you've come to do, or hurry and do what you're going to do. Once again, the disciples are confused. Judas leaves. Let's get to verse, let's, get, let's move forward in this passage, starting in verse 31. <clears throat> Excuse me. As soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his glory to the Son, and he will do the same. Here it is. I mentioned this earlier. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. You may remember that from an earlier part of John where he's like, you, you can't go where I'm going. Here he's saying the same thing to the disciples, but with a different thing because, um, well, you'll see in a second. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? Simon didn't really care there was a new command. He wanted to know, what? wait a minute, you're going somewhere? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. But why can't I come now, Lord? He asked, I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus answered, die for me? I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. So we've read about Judas, Jesus um, predicting Judas' betrayal. Now he predicts Peter's denial. Let's walk through this passage again, and then we're going to bring it together. Ready? Verse 31. The moment Judas leaves, we see Jesus stand up and say, the time has come. 
He begins to talk about this glory thing, which kind of sounds Yoda-esque, I understand. But the time has come for the Son of Man to, to enter his glory. What glory? Into heaven? No, the cross. The glory is the cross. You can see that in the, son, in the title that he refers to himself as the Son of Man. We see that in the Old Testament a number of places, which often when, when, when you see it in the, in the Old Testament, it, it's in reference to glory. But the synoptic gospels, which are the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, use the Son of Man title in reference to suffering. And John brings those together, the glory and the suffering on the cross. Jesus reveals and gives glory to the Father on the cross, and the Father gives glory to Jesus. Once again, he says, dear children, this is that, that whole idea of, of him presiding over this, this meal. The, and it worked out that way. The, the, the disciples are asking questions. What's, gonna, what's going on exactly? What's going to take place? Help us understand what these things mean. Actually, one of the questions that is asked by a little kid at, a, at one of those meals what is the, what are the meaning of these things? Verse 34 through 35, we see Jesus. He hasn't yet predicted Peter's denial. He begins to give them instruction for when he's gone. That's what the, the whole farewell discourse is about. It's farewell. I'm leaving, and here's what I need for you to know and to do and to be. Now, we're going we're gonna to break down these instructions here in a moment. We're, we're going to kind of take this and, and make it, because really this is the heart of this passage. This is the heart of this message, verses 34 and 35. We're going to land there in a second, but just know that after, while he's giving instructions, Peter interrupts and says, wait a minute. You're going, what? You're going, where? I can't, we can't go with you. He's not, Peter's not interested in a new commandment. He doesn't even want to hear it. All he hears is, is Jesus is leaving them. So he asks, where are you going? Jesus' response is, you can't go with me. Peter doesn't understand. And he says, but why? Like a kid in the backseat of the car. Why? Jesus, you don't understand, man. I'll lay my life down for you. I'm never going to give you up. I'm never going to let you down. I'm never going to run around and desert you. I mean, there's a zealous passion in his voice. Peter's words showed that he underestimated, like we talked about at the beginning of this message, he, under, he underestimated his weakness and certainly overestimated his strength. And we know that to be true. Jesus' response is like, you're going to die for me? <laughs> Peter, you have good intentions. But in the comfort of this upper room, the security of this upper room, you have good intentions. I love your zealousness, Peter. We've got good food. We've got some wine. It's a great place to be. But guess what? When you get out there and the mob confronts you, your good intentions and your zealousness, it's not enough. Jesus knows that Peter can't back it up. And he gives them some, a little bit of truth. You're going to deny me, which Peter, I'm sure, was like, yeah, I can't even envision it. Verses 34 through 35, let's go there now. 
This is the new commandment. This is the key to loving the unlovable. This is the key to loving like Jesus. Not that he just set a standard. I'm going to get ahead of myself. Let's read it. 34 to 35. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. See, the, the command to love each other, is, 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 it's a simple one. We learned it as children, did we not? We memorized it as children. But as for those of us who are, I don't know, mature, established, experienced or seasoned saints who've been in this a long time, we know that it's still something that we can't fully comprehend or, or practice. I mean, am I right on that? If you can fully practice love each other, then I will yield this pulpit to you. Yeah, simple truth, profound truth. Learned and memorized by children, struggling, struggled to be followed by us. Now, Jesus calls it a new command. It's not a, it's not a new command because it's not something, it's not a new command because it's like, oh, we've never heard of this before. Deuteronomy 6, 5 says this, and this is in the Old Testament, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. And then Leviticus 19, 18, do not seek revenge or bear grudge against fellow Israelites, but love your neighbor as yourself. The Old Testament commands us to love, love God and love others. And Jesus, when he's confronted by teachers of the law, says, Man, all of the, the, the law and all of the prophets can be summarized in these two commands. So there's a command in the Old Testament to love, but this is different because Jesus sets a new standard with this command. The reason this is a new command is because he says to love each other just as I have loved you. Not only is it a standard that's, an, that's new, just as Jesus has loved us, but in that it's designed to reflect the relationship of love that exists between the Father and the Son. Jesus talks about his relationship with the Father in chapters 8, 10, and 12. We've been there, and we're going to continue to hear about this relationship as we move forward. Chapters 14, chapters 15. We could camp on chapter 15. If you skip church, don't skip Mother's Day because my wife is speaking, and don't skip chapter 15. This is the kind of relationship, the kind of love that Jesus is calling his disciples to. That's why when we get to chapter 15, he's like, abide in me. Just like he and the Father are one, he's like, we, we live life together. We, I and you, you and me. So here's where there's hope for what seems to be impossible, to love like Jesus. The commandment, or I, I read it in the New Living Translation, and I gotta be honest with you, sometimes English translations, and it's not, You've heard me say this before. Sometimes English translations miss out on the subtleties of what the, the, you know, the Greek. It's not anything, it just happens because English words and Greek words don't have necessarily perfect equivalents. The grammar is not perfectly equivalent, so you can't just, you know. So I thank God for the English translations because I don't speak Greek and neither do you. And say for maybe Kostas. Uh, <laughs> but... Sometimes we translate this, but let me, let me show you something. My English translation, New Living Translation, says you should love each other just as I have loved you. You should. And, then, and we, so we get this, I should. I've got to do this thing. I've got to carry this burden. I have to love people even though I don't like them. That's, that kind of speaks to that idea. 
But the Greek in the Greek, this sentence actually reads this way, a little more wooden, not how we speak in English. As I have loved you in order that you might love one another. In order that. See, that's very different sounding than you should. In order that, as I have loved you, in order that, that's a cause and effect relationship. At the same time, the whole thing of as I have loved you, and this is true in a lot of places in Scripture, but that, that, the word that we're going to translate as can very easily and maybe more appropriately at times be translated since I have loved you. Technically, it's in as much as. I mean, that's who says in as much as? The same people who say, what was that word from earlier? Effervescent. Good for you, English teacher. But listen, since I have loved you in order that you might love one another, Jesus is saying that his love for us will awaken within us the ability to love other people. His love is the cause for our love. Our love will be like his love because his love flows in us and through us. See, when we love like Jesus, it's evidence that we have first received his love. And that's the big idea that I want you to get from this message. If you take nothing else out other than the good news of the gospel, which if you know, we have to be reminded over and over again, let it be this. You can't love like Jesus without the love of Jesus. Seems like an obvious statement. You can only love like Jesus by first allowing his love to flow in you and then through you. I wish I found a good video to illustrate this because I looked. Do you know, like, if you take a piece of steel and you lay it down, I found a, <laughs> I won't, never mind. I'll tell the staff tomorrow. I found a video, but uh, it's not worth showing. You take a piece of steel, you take a magnet, and you begin to, like, place it on that thing. Eventually, you create a magnet. Not because the steel has it in it, but you place a magnet on a piece of steel, the atoms begin to rearrange inside the piece of steel, and it transforms into a magnet, a permanent magnet, because it's had a relationship with the magnet. This is the picture of transformation, that, 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 and that's just an illustration of the transformation that happens with our life with Jesus. It speaks of the closeness to the Father and the Son, and from the Son to those who follow him. We become magnetized with his love. We become magnetized by, by enjoying his love, by rejoicing in his love, by feeling the warmth of his love, by reminding ourselves of his love. We become magnetized by remembering that we do not deserve his love, that we did not earn his love, and that we cannot lose his love. That's, if we really consider those things, if we really live there, his love flows in us, it changes us. And it flows through us. You can't love like Jesus without the love of Jesus. You can't love, you can only love like Jesus by first allowing his love to flow in you and then through you. So what does that mean for us? Let me give you a couple things. First of all, stop trying to manufacture love. Stop trying to produce it. Stop trying to deep, dig down deep so you can show love. Let him love through you. Why, why let him love through you? Because if, you, if you're not overestimating your strength and underestimating your, 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 your weakness, you'll recognize you can't manufacture anything close to his kind of love. But when we let, him, when we let his love flow through us, it does a couple things. It allows us to love 
like he loves, a standard that we cannot reach on our own in our own ability and our own strength. His love doesn't depend on the recipient like ours does. He doesn't just love the people who are easy to love like we do. He chooses to love the unlovely, people who are rejected, difficult to love, who are looked down upon. He loved them not because he was chasing after this feel-good feeling of, of, of you know, love, but because they needed love. His love doesn't depend on the recipient, and for many of us, sometimes that's all we can seem to muster is that kind of love that depends on somebody else. Secondly, Jesus' love is expressed in deeds and not words. You remember the Matthew chapter 25 when he separates the sheeps and the goats? Remember that passage? What does he say? Enter in, because when I was sick, you visited me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. I was always like inspired by that passage, but also kind of terrified that I'm going to be not the sheep, separated out. And in my own strength and ability, that's where I'm going to end up being. If we want to love in word, indeed, in not just in word, then we allow Christ's love to flow through us. It's the only way I think that we can be the sheep. And thirdly, the why we should let his love through, flow through us is that his love is without end. Remember, you may recall the very first verse of this chapter. John chapter 13, 1 says this, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. Jesus did not give up on them. I've loved, but I've given up. He loved them as long as he could do, or as long, he loved them. Well, second thing, abide in Christ. I know you hear this a lot from this pastor. We're going to get to John 15, so I don't want to really dwell here for a long time, but I think it's appropriate in this moment. If we talk about the magnet, the piece of steel that is transformed because of its relationship with the magnet, we talk about that. They are abiding together. Whatever is in that magnet is flowing into and through that piece of steel. That's the picture of abiding in Christ. It's not a job of make sure I do my devotions, although that may be part of it. Make sure I pray. Make sure I come to church. Those things are important. We need the Spirit to do His work, to guide and convict, to speak to us. We need His Word to, to, to transform our mind and our heart. We need the church to live in community together because that's how that's God's idea, not mine. I'm not promoting the church because I work here. I'm promoting the church because it's God's idea for us to live our life together. We're going we're gonna to hit up the whole abide in Christ when we get to John 15 because that's what that's all about. But one of the things that I would like to do today is, is, is um, give you a little resource that we we want to make an investment in your life, in your ministry, in your life, in your, your ministry out there as you live your life in the marketplace, in your family. Um, so today we're giving out a free gift. It's a resource to help you abide. It's called Right Now Media. And some of you have heard about it. Some of you have paid for your own subscription for years. 
But uh, as a church, we have signed up for, with Write Down Media. We are making the investment there and giving it to you for free to use. Some people call it the Christian Netflix. It's a streaming service with 10,000 teaching videos. Um, a few years ago, you, if you wanted to buy a, a, a Bible curriculum, a, a teaching series, you got to pay $50, $100. And so do the math. What's $50 or $100 times 10,000 teaching videos? So it's thousands of dollars of content. As an opportunity for you to, to fill your home with teaching, there's a whole section about for kids with like Christian uh, instruction and, and cartoons. There's, 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 there's things there about marriage and finance, you know, Christian Bible-based teaching for relationships. You can, if you're like me, you'll find the church history lecture, which seems really boring, but I was like, whoa, yeah, look at that. Yes, I did. So this thing is absolutely free for you. And um, you should have actually received an email uh, that, that came for your sign-up, or that came to your email to help you sign up. That, that's got, that got sent out at 10.30. Don't look at your phone right now. Just hold off. I'm going to let you get your phone out in a second. In a second. But I want you to watch this video. Welcome to our study of the Gospel of John. I have fallen in love with the work of Paul as I've studied the book of 1 Corinthians, and I believe you will too. This is where Jesus taught in Capernaum, and you have to understand this scene. The Lord is my shepherd. And over the next six weeks, we're gonna look deeply into the 23rd Psalm. Right now, media, it's for groups. It's for personal devotion. It's for parents. The bullseye of parenting is to raise children who become like Jesus. It's for kids. This is Phil. We're digging into the Bible, which, as we've mentioned, is more than just a book. It's for tough times. So when you recognize that you're trying to have a conversation with your spouse and they're not ready to talk, it's not helpful to keep pressing right. them. It's for every phase of life. If you've made mistakes with money, you know what that makes you? Over 12. And now, it's yours. We've purchased a Right Now Media subscription for everyone in our church. So check your inbox for the digital invitation and download the app for instant access to thousands of biblically-based videos. Get equipped. Get inspired. So this thing actually works just like Netflix. So if you have a, a whatever streaming device, uh, you can get a, a, the channel on your thing. So it'll work like, you know, you open it like Netflix. But if you get on the actual website, there's resources and there's curriculums that you could print off that go with these studies. You can use this in the morning with your own devotional time. And then you could probably hop in your car and go meet with a group and study something together. This is, I think this is going to be a kind of a game changer. Like our church library, like this thing says, is now huge. It's gigantic. Um, and so we want to make this, uh, we want to put this in your hands, pray that it blesses you and your walk with Christ, pray that it feeds that abiding with, with Christ and it'll resource our, our church programs. Now, let me give you, let me give you one thing. We're going to, now you can pull your phone out and scan the QR code. If you did not get that email, it's because we don't have your email address. So give us your email address, but put, you can scan that with your phone. It'll give you a link. You can click up and everybody here has their own account 
Uh, we're not using the, we're not sharing a radiant life, a radiant Christian life account. We are you have your own account, but it's tied to radiant Christian life as a gift that uh, that we're giving you. So um, pretty excited about but that. Oh, can I say one last thing? It's not in my notes. I'm going to give the best Bible teachers in America. It takes a certain kind of pastor to be like, here, here are a whole bunch of guys who are better than me. But uh, I'm okay with that. You could like those guys better than me, but you cannot use this to substitute being together as a church. All right? That's the deal. That's supplementary, man. You could, those guys could be your favorite, but this needs to be your favorite body, your favorite congregation. So, so not a substitute, just a compliment. All right. Let me close out real, here real quick. Many of you know Peter who does deny Jesus when he's confronted with the mob. He stands up. Just a little short time later, Jesus raises from the dead. He ascends to the Father. He stands up on the day of Pentecost and he boldly proclaims the risen Christ. One author says this about Peter and about his zealousness that was misplaced because he put it on himself. We must learn that in our zeal for Christ, we will not do what he wants us to do. We have to glory in his love for us, not our love for him. Then our own hearts will begin to burn with this same love. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. What a privilege we have to gather together in a place like this to gather together and to walk life together. I thank you for the grace that exists, the grace that you've shown us and the grace that we show to one another. We, we fall short, Lord. The call to humble ourselves and wrap a towel around our waist and wash each other's feet. Oh boy, we fall short. The call to love each other despite how others act, despite the potential of hurt Betrayal and denial. Father, we don't have what it takes. May we glory in your love for us. Would you transform us, Lord? Not because we have what it takes, but because you are living in us and through us May we receive your love, which quite honestly, some of us struggle with. May we receive it, Lord. And may we be vessels, channels, conduits of your love to others. Would you love through us? In Jesus' name, amen.